Hear now the word of the Lord. We're in the book of Hebrews. We're starting off on that incredible first paragraph. We're into verse 3 of chapter 1. He, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As most of you know, the idea of a name embodies in it something of the character or the characteristics of a person. Now, throughout the Old, Old Testament, names were given and had much significance to those names, what they meant. For example, the name Noah meant rest. Noah was God's way of bringing a Sabbath to the earth, cleansing it, purifying it with water, and bringing about a rest for his people, saving in an ark, which is a symbol of Christ, a remnant. Many names in the Old Testament. Abram, father of many nations, Abraham, and so on and so forth we could go. Judah. The word meant praise. So Judah was the one tribe that brought forth the Christ who was the praise of God, the glory of God. So the name that Jesus has tells us some things about his person. And if you'll notice the creed that we recited a little earlier, the Nicene Creed, the thing that differs it most from the earliest creed of the church, the Apostles' Creed, is the expanded portion that has to do with the person of Christ. And that's what the preacher here delivering this exhortation to the Hebrew Christians is doing. He is extolling the name, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ by telling us things about Christ, things about His character. And there are seven of them. We looked at two of them last week. We saw last week that he has been appointed the heir of all things. That is, Christ has been given an adoption, an appointment, a definite inheritance by the Father. Then we also saw in the second place, as we looked at the second one, that it is through him, through Jesus Christ, that the Father created the world. We saw that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, the wisdom of God, the Logos of God. And when God spoke things into existence, that Word that brought things into existence was Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, the eternal Word, the living Word. And He spoke it into existence. Jesus was the active agent in creation. Here today we have five more of these descriptive phrases of Christ. And we cannot even begin to exhaust them, but let me just sort of walk us through each one and see if we can see at least what is apparent upon the surface of this particular passage. Great Christological passage talking about 
Christ. It says here in the next phrase as we begin our text, He, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. The authorized version, the King James said, Who being the brightness of His glory. The word that's used is the word that means an effulgence or a radiation. The radiance that shines forth from a source. It emits the brightness. He is what our creed said that we just recited a moment ago. He is the light of lights. He is the light emanating from the supreme source. The radiance is that which eternally proceeds from the Father. And the Father is light. The Bible says, in fact, that light enshrouds God the Father. And Jesus Christ is that single-focused ray that comes forth. Now, there's some Greek thought behind that. As there is in so much pagan thought, they get close. It's not unusual that pagan cultures, Babylonian, Egyptian, the Mayan and Aztec civilizations, had as their supreme God a sun god whose name in Egypt was, guess what? Ray. So using this language which has been corrupted as men worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator, the writer wants to install back the true meaning of what it amounts to. And when Christ came, he said that he said, I am the light of the world. The light brings life. There would be no life on earth if it wasn't for the sunshine upon the plants and upon the animals and upon the creation. In fact, that's the way John crafts it in his gospel. He says, Jesus is the light of man, the true light which lighteth every man, the light of life. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, as he had laid aside his divine prerogatives and humbled himself and become in human form, longed for that day when he would be restored to that glory, that brightness, that brilliance. In the garden, he, I mean, with his disciples, he prayed, glorify me with that glory which I had with thee before the world was. The preexistent Christ shared in every lumen of that light of the glory of God. Paul, the writer here is saying over and over, he is God, he is God. He inherits all things. All things were by Him, through Him, and for Him. He's created all things. And He is now that brightness that beams forth. It's interesting that the gospel message is the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that which lights the heart, lights the soul, brings our understanding Gives us our existence, enables us to see everything else. You can be in a room full of objects, but if it's pitch dark in there, you can't see a thing. But when the light shines in, everything else around now is visible and understandable, perceivable. All that is owed to this particular attribute of Christ, and that is He is the radiance, the shining forth of the glory of God. In the second place, in our text today, the sun is the exact imprint of God's nature. The authorized version says the express image of his person. 
the Revised Standard says, bears the very stamp of God's nature. Uh, Two words very significant in there. The word stamp and the words nature, or in our text, the exact imprint. The first word that, that is translated imprint or stamp is the word character in the Greek. And it refers to that die that is cast for a koan that makes an exact impress upon the metal. And so when the koan comes out of the cast, it bears the exact representation of that character. But it defines the character. It's not just that he's an imprint of the character, but it says something about the character. The next word is the word hypostasis. That's the word that talks about substance and reality. In other words, God, Jesus doesn't just bear the exact replica of God. He has the stuff of God. He is the very essence of who God is. The glory of God is the effulgence or the the radiation, but the substance of God is in the impress. This is God, fully God in Christ. The exact representation and the full embodiment of Godhood. Thus is the deity of Christ. And in the incarnation we can see that God is invisible and infinite in His deity. But in the humanity of Christ, God becomes finite and visible so that Jesus could say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. To see Christ is to see God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. That's why we as Christians have an exclusivity. We didn't make that up. Christ insists upon it. The true God, the God of heaven and earth, the living God, the creator God, the infinite God, the holy God, the ineffable God is made known, expressed, brought to us at all by the Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Ten Commandments said, Thou shalt not make unto themselves any graven image. Because any graven image that you'd make, no matter how good it was, it wasn't good enough. Because the actual icon, and that's the word that's used, the actual image of God is Jesus Christ. He is the true graven image. And to make another is idolatry. It is apostate. It is blasphemous. That is the nature of Jesus. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. The third thing in our text, speaking of the Son, it says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The authorized version, the King James says, and upholding all things by the word of of his power. Pretty close, isn't it? They're just about the same. A couple of significant words in this phrase. The first one is the word pharaoh, which means to bear. A ferry bears goods across a river or across a bay. To carry, to bear. And that's the word. Jesus 
carries, he ferries, he bears, he upholds is, a, is another good definition of it. He upholds, the Bible says, all things. This word panta, which means all, pan, like pan-American, all-American, a panacea, a solution for all, that is pan, all things, over and over. It's this all-inclusive term. It's used over and over and over in the New Testament to be inclusive of what God has done in Christ to cover the bases, to be the pan, to cover it all. And Jesus Christ upholds all things. And here I think which probably talking about all things created, the universe. And as we saw earlier in the first uh, lesson of this particular passage, the universe is seen in terms of time and space. It's not just the earth and stars and the, the um, heavenly bodies as we know them and as we have yet to discover them, but it's also time. It's the eons of, of time as well. Time is a creation, created commodity the same as the earth is, both of which are derived and created from the wisdom and the mind of God to bring things, time and space, all things, we might say. He, he holds this all together by, and another important word in that phrase is, his word of power. The word there for power is the word we're familiar with, dunamis, dynamite, the explosive power, the, 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 the demonstrative power. But the other thing that's interesting is the word that's translated word is not the word we're used to. Every time we see the word word in the scriptures, we usually say, well, that's the logos. But this is the word rhema. It's a different word for word. And this expresses a dynamic word, a word that is active, a word that goes forth, a word that actually accomplishes something. It's a word that is almost a deed within itself. It's the powerful word of God. It's the rhema word. And so we find a beautiful combination of truths in this passage. One, we have already learned that the creative utterance which called the world into being, that is, the word was created by the word of God so that that which is seen is made out of things which do not appear. That's Hebrews 11.3 and it's telling us about the creation out of nothing that God performed with his logos word. He created everything, a creative utterance that said, let there be. But the parallel truth that's taught here in this particular phrase is that there is a sustaining utterance which upholds it and holds it all together, a rhema word. In Colossians, Paul says, by him all things consist. They hold together, and they are upheld. They are ferried upward, born and upheld. So we find two kinds of word, a creative utterance which call the world into being, saying, let there be and a sustaining utterance which holds it all together, which says, let there continue to be. And we used an example last week of gravity, and it holds here too. 
in the macro, it's the planets and the stars and the heavenly bodies working in attraction to one another, creating orbits and rotations. In the micro world, it's the tiny little cell with the electrons spinning around the neutrons, the protons, and ever how the scientists analyze it these days. You know, what is it? Oh, we can see it. It's observable. Empirical observation can show us it. We can, we can count on it. Why do we are able to count on it? Why do we believe the sun will come up in the morning? Why do we believe a molecule will hold its consistency? It's because God spoke it in the logos in Christ. And God upholds it and sustains it. He keeps it consistent. In his rhema, Jesus Christ, his dynamic word. That ought to be enough for one morning, but let me go for about five more minutes because I got two more things to tell you. This one will be brief on because we're going to spend a lot of time on it before we get through here because it is the significant theme of the book of Hebrews. But it says, after making purification for sins... The authorized version said, when he had by himself purged our sins. I like that. Making purification sounds good, but purging, you know, going from the passive to the active or something about it. He by himself, that's significant. We'll talk about it in subsequent sermons. Purged our sins. A couple of significant words here. One is the word purge. It's actually the word, we get our word catharsis. It means a thorough cleansing. It is a washing. It is a purging. That's what Jesus' blood did on the cross. As he shed his blood, it was a purgatory. It was a purging of the sins. And the other word is the word sin in this, this passage. Sin is the hamartia. It's the missing of the mark. It's the falling short. It's the disobedience. It's the outlawed thing that is done by sinful creatures. It carries within it a poison. And it is deadly to our souls. The soul that sins, it shall die. Something's got to be done about the poison in the soul. And it is purged out by the cleansing blood of Christ. And it's interesting it said here that he made purification. That's the word that's actually used. That's why the ESV says made purification instead of purging because they want to get that word make into our English language, because it's the same word here. It's the same word that's used earlier when it says he made the earth. He created the earth. He made the earth. He made purification. It's a work. It's an accomplishment. It, it took, it took a, a, a sequence of events. It took labors. It took effort and endeavor. It took obedience, and it took faithfulness, and all sorts of things to make and to accomplish our salvation. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished, because it was a job, a dirty job that had to be done. The only person that could do it was the great high priest himself. This epistle will enrich our understanding immeasurably of this great act, this one great act of offering of himself for sin. And then finally, 
The final phrase in our description of Christ is, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The authorized version says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. (laughs) Our ES boys didn't change it much at all, did they? And that's because it's just beautifully phrased right out of the language. The majesty of God is, the majesty on high is God. The scriptures say that following his effective work in which it was finished and he was laid in the tomb where he rested from all his labors, keeping the Sabbath day, all day on the Sabbath he rested. But then he was raised in power and glory in the resurrection. And it wasn't just a resurrection. It was an ascension. It wasn't just a resurrection and an ascension. It was an enthronement on high. God raised him all the way up. Just like he had said in the Psalm 110, which this whole book of Hebrews is a commentary on Psalm 110. He had said, sit thou at my right hand. And that's exactly where Jesus sat. He sat as David did in the the, uh, tabernacle before the ark of God. And he was given this name that's above every name. He is seated. That's interesting. It's not only a place of authority at the right hand, but he's seated. You sit down when your work is done. It's interesting, the book of Hebrews will point out in a very significant passage a little later on that the priest of Aaron, the high priest, had to stand. And they stood in the temple doing their duties. They stood, they stood. Their work was never done. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So they just kept offering one sacrifice after another, all pointing to Christ, all pointing to Christ. None of them finished, none of them efficacious, but all of them pointing to the one sacrifice that would be efficacious for all. It's interesting, one of the words that's interesting in this particular passage, not only dextra, the right hand of God, that's the place of power all through the Old Testament. The way God does something is he bears his right arm. And he, he put, rolls up his sleeves and he uses his right hand. Right hand is the hand of skill. Right hand is the hand of power. Right hand is the hand of righteous judgment. Right hand is the hand of discernment. And, and we can go on, there's some, some other things too. But that's what Jesus now has inherited. He's inherited this, this place of authority. And it's interesting, the word that is used, he sat down, it's the word for, for seat. It's the word cathedra a cathedral is the seat of the bishop when the pope speaks he speaks ex cathedra he speaks from the chair and that's where jesus is he is on that throne as i conclude let me just mention as we've looked through these uh, four verses here to start this book we've seen In microcosm, the entire mediatorial work of Christ. Christ is a mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's fully God, fully man, and can bring the two together. His ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. He was sent to do it. That's why he's called the great apostle of our confession. This mediatorial work 
of, of, of Christ is accomplished through the three great offices in ancient Israel, the prophet, the priest, and the prince. And Jesus is seen in this passage as all three. Remember back last week, God spoke through one who is a son. He speaks for God. He's a prophet. He has purged our sins. He is a priest. And he sits at the majesty, the right hand of God, fully equal and fully authoritative, co-regent with the almighty God himself. He is the prince. Several times in this book, the writer is going to just go off on a few uh, parenthetical exhortations, which are rich. In fact, most preachers pull those out and preach them and don't preach the, the argument of the book. <laughs> That's how I've heard Hebrews treated most of the time from pulpits. Hope we don't do that here. But over and over they would say, consider Jesus. Remember that famous passage in verse 12, looking unto Jesus. That's really what the Christian life is all about. That's what growing in grace is all about. That's what maturity is, is looking to Christ. And as we look like Christ, the Bible says, we become like him. So much so that in the eschaton, in the last day, the great hope is we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. You're more like Christ the more clearly you can see him and visualize him. And since he is in the image of God, he's the true icon of God, as you look at him in faith and study him and behold the man, you become like him. And as you become like him, you become like God. Godly. You become more godly. And when you do that, you're getting closer to what the creation was all about in the first place. God making us in His image. 